Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Innovate MR is an independent sampling and res tech company delivering faster answers from targeted audiences to support agile research. Innovate MR also develops forward-thinking products, empowering businesses to create data-driven strategies and identify growth opportunities. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy back with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. And, you know, all of these are incredibly interesting. But today, today, I think we have a real treat. I am joined by Grant McCracken. And if you have not heard of Grant McCracken, well, you've been missing out. So first, hi, Grant. Welcome. Hey, Lenny. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you. So Normally, I let our guests introduce themselves, but in this case, I'm going to read Grant's bio because he is too modest to do it himself, Um, (laughs) and uh, it's pretty darn impressive, and you'll see why I'm excited for this. So Grant is a cultural anthropologist. He holds a PhD from the University of Chicago. He's the author of 14 books, most recently, The New Honor Code. Well, actually, I guess The Return of the Artisan is the most recent one based on this. He's also the author of Chief Culture Officer in Dark Value, Culturematic, Flock and Flow, He was the founder of the Institute of Contemporary Culture at the Royal Ontario Museum. He's taught at Harvard, University of Cambridge, and MIT. He's a co-founder of the Artisanal Economies Project. He's the inventor of the GRIF, an early warning system for social and cultural change. He does lots of consulting, and we have had him on stage at IIEX. And uh, when I first met you, Grant, let's see if you remember this. It was in New York at the ARF. And we were hanging out in a bar with John Kieran. Uh, so <laughs> yes. do you uh, you recall that? I do. Yep. And that was just like, wow, I'm hanging out with Grant McCracken in a bar in New York City. How about that? That's uh, yeah. that, that's pretty cool. And since then, I followed your work closely in especially your recent Substack launch as you've been chronicling things. So excited to have you on. Would you want to add anything else to the bio so our audience can get to know you a little bit more? No, that's great. I'm Canadian. That's maybe sometimes worth mentioning, but otherwise, no, that's it. All right. That's great. So when I reached out to you, obviously, I've I've been fascinated by your work on understanding multiple dimensions of culture and particularly your Substack series recently, as you've been, I would say, kind of breaking down some of the forces that are impacting our culture right now, diagnosing them and also proposing you know, possibly some solutions. So why don't we start there? And can you give a summary of that thinking right now? And we can build off of that. Sure. I was reading a Duke sociologist, Healy Kieran, maybe it's Kieran Healy. I'm dyslexic, so it's always a toss up. It could be one, it could be the other. Anyhow, he opens this essay and it's just a working paper that he never published. It's just sitting there obscurely on his website. And what, he's, what he says at one point is, hey, we used to think about culture as the ballast of our world. It used to be the thing we relied upon to keep the world kind of running smoothly. It supplied all kinds of order invisibly. There it was smoothing the waters 
of the contemporary world. And he says now, increasingly, culture no longer looks like our ballast. It looks like a source of problems. It looks like a source of turbulence, all in its own account. And that sort of struck me as a, a thunderbolt. I mean, I came out of the University of Chicago just at that moment when we were in a position to start apply anthropology to American culture. And that's what I've been doing for most of my career. And for most of that part of my career, I, you know, held to the idea that culture was a kind of a source of order working invisibly in the background. And as I saw his remark, I thought, oh, my God, what if he's right? And then I had this horrifying sense that, damn it, he probably is right. So that sort of forced me to sit down and think, I thought, well, okay, I'll do a piece, I'll do a series on Substack, and I'll look at all of the ways in which culture might be a, a series of problems for us, a source of our disorder, and then try to think about whether and how we could turn to culture in a more kind of deliberate way to um, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So that's where the Substack thing came from. Okay. Now, as soon as I read that work on your Substack, intuitively, I had that same kind of thunderbolt moment of, Holy shit! I think he's. Yeah, I do think he's right. And you know, from my own observations of the world, just as a person, right. know, and then quickly went to the thought of this has an obviously profound impact on everything. But because I'm so myopic in the research world, something that I've been thinking for a while that you know our our assumptions about the world and the populations that we engage with are no longer necessarily true. And what are the implications from a researcher standpoint when, you know, our segmentation models that we spent a million dollars to to build, you know, three years ago, well, uh, or the psychographic components of those segmentation models, they're probably not right anymore. There are different drivers of behavior. There are different values being created. They do appear to be, in many cases, at odds with one another. There is a decided lack of cohesion across the board and not uh, we can go wherever we want to this is not a, a this is not a commentary on politics or or society or any of those things it's simply an observation that to your point that ballast seems to be lost at this point and that has implications for how we try to understand the world and the work that we do across the board from your level as as a cultural anthropologist to designing a survey for procter and gamble we have to get a handle on those things so we can do our jobs right. So first, do you agree with that big perspective of, you know, this is an important topic as it touches so many things, even at a very fundamental and pragmatic level within the insights industry? Totally, totally. I think that's really well said. I mean, we could choose a couple of examples, one of which would be, which respondent are we talking to? If we're a culture that encourages people to imagine themselves as a crowded house of possibility, if people are constantly inventing new cells and then sustaining those cells in a in a crowded house, which which of those people are we talking to when we engage them for research purposes? And sometimes the compelling answer for research purposes is that oh my God, there are two there are two or three distinctly different creatures in this one consumer, and that those people interact in interesting ways to shape consumer taste and preference. So sometimes that's kind of where we want to go. But in other times, it's noise in the system. And so that's a, that's potentially a kind of problem. I think the, the sheer churn of contemporary culture is another problem. Because we're now host to so much internal diversity, 
And I don't mean in the, the, the fashionable sense of diversity, though God knows that's important and God knows that creates its own kind of dynamism in our world. But just because there's so much diversity in, you look at music or you look at television or you, know, you look at American culture after World War II, there were basic sort of blocks of taste and preference, right? And there, in the case of music, there were, I don't know, let's say eight genre and any piece of music fell into one of those. And when people were creating culture, creating music, they were working from that playbook, from that genre playbook. And, and now, of course, there's that beautiful image floating around online where some guy has tried to map all of the genres into which music has to fall. <laughs> it's just hundreds and hundreds of little circles within circles, right? It's the ultimate, it's the kind of Venn diagram that drives people like us nuts. But if that's the case, then we just have We've lost, you know, I like to think of what it was like to do marketing after World War II. It was kind of, I call it the Waikiki model of reading change, right? Changes came in these beautiful big breakers that ran from outside to inside. And you could see them coming into shore a long way off. And you could pick your, you could advise the client that that fourth or fifth wave that's coming in, that's the wave for you. Hit that wave and you're good. And now, of course, it's a perfect storm of, of possibilities. So just that another source of noise in the system is for us as researchers, tough to manage. And then for our clients, you know, it's just like I, I have people who just just talking to a Canadian bank and they didn't, you know, people used to say, can, can you give us an answer to this problem? And now they say, so what's the problem? And now they just look at me and go. WTF. Like, I honestly don't know what's going on here. Let's talk about, it, right? So there is just that that new order of dynamism and, and, and that breeds real and uh, head-breaking kinds of intellectual difficulty. Yeah. And it, yeah, I love that analogy of catching the right wave where now it's just a constant, you know, constant hurricane. And at so many fragmentation points. And again, I want to be cautious for our audience. We're not, this is not a, a conversation that gets into, I'm not interested in trying in this conversation to understand why or to assign blame on where these fragmentation points are occurring. Um, simply acknowledgement that they are. And I expect Grant, you and I could talk offline and it would be a fun conversation about the thousand and one different things that are creating those fracture points, but they are, they're there. And I thought what was most fascinating about your work on Substack recently was, you know, sort of that that understanding at a macro level. Here are those things, and you and you boiled that down to some key things that uh, were were kind of if if we had to to map them out again, not that Venn, Venn diagram necessarily that that you know crazy one, but that there are some core principles that it seems like we could focus on. And once we could understand what those core principles were, then here's a possible prescription on what we could do to help bring a little bit of cohesion back. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and your own analysis of where we got to? I sort of begin by uh, identifying what for me is one of the really painful problems of the present moment. And that's the, the young men that we call not only young men, but often young men we call failure to launch guys who stand at the verge of high school or college and just freeze, just say, I don't know how to do this. It's too complicated. And they fail to launch and they remain in some, a funny 
weird state of stasis. Now, I can't tell you, you know, I do make my living doing ethnographies and I'm in and out of people's homes. And I can't tell you the number of times where I run into a failure to launch kid with just kind of standing there. I was doing interviews in, in Los Angeles in a, in a strip mall. And I was talking to two guys who were forthcoming and great interview. And there's a kid standing kind of off on the margin. And he was, uh, just standing there kind of looking at us. And one of our threesomes said, come on over, join us. And he kind of came over with some reluctance, but he was thrilled to be included and he couldn't really contribute much to the conversation, but he was just pleased as punch to be there. And I thought, you know, this is what failure to launch looks like. It's not these kids are rejecting, grandly rejecting contemporary culture. They just don't know. They truly don't know how to get in. So I said to myself, well, where does this come from? And there are lots of answers. Only some of them are anthropological. I was disappointed to learn because I like to think that all answers are anthropological. <laughs> but, you know, but they're not. So one of the things, one of the problems here is uh, these kids get to the edge of adulthood, and what they're looking at is uh, a world in which almost all of the elites have fallen silent. And you, again, if I like to go back to just after World War II, when we had a relative moment of relative clarity, and you think about the various elites that control, that shaped opinion and, and encouraged people to think something or or not. And you had, you know, you had social elites, you had um, intellectual elites. There's some beautiful work coming out of MIT where the researcher there talks about, um, does these beautiful diagrams that show who is giving off, who's consuming the most oxygen in contemporary culture. I'll get you the reference because it's really worthwhile. And so you see that even, even like scientists are conspicuous in the public domain because people really cared about scientists and experts and social social creatures of one kind or another. And that's clearly, you know, almost all of those elites have been brought low. And the only elites that matter now are celebrities. And celebrities are not a few people. They are hundreds of people. And they serve at our pleasure. You know, they come up, we like them or we don't. The moment we stop liking them, the hook comes out and they're pulled off the stage. And so these kids are kind of looking for, okay, what, what, where can I find navigational satellites? Where can I find people who seem to have a picture of the world that I can adopt and, and adopting now navigate in? And what they're seeing are all of these possibilities that are sometimes hard to read, but even if you can read them, hard to embrace. So. That's certainly a piece of it. I think, you know, recently we had this outbreak of discussion about vibe shifts. And I thought that was a beautiful thing to talk about because that's like a little eddy in culture, right? Or, or, or any trend is a moment where you get the sudden kind of out of nowhere consensus within the larger field of consensus that is culture. And now people go, oh, yeah, no, I love that kind of music or I love that kind of clothing or, you know, this is how I want to design my kitchen or here's what I think a meal for my family should look like. And those vibe shifts have really broken down as well those little currents, little trends that run through and give everybody a sense of consensus for a moment. You know, and that's that's especially testing because I think what we're looking, you know, we used to have that beautiful diffusion pattern. Our world after World War II constructed out of this tension between mainstream people at the center of society and avant-garde creatures 
on the margin. They were constantly innovating and sending those innovations into the mainstream where they would be embraced and modified and sometimes refused. But you had this beautiful system that gave you constant innovation and dynamism coming in from the margin. And then a stability within where things would, where these innovations coming in would be codified in some sense and made part of how the mainstream thought about the world. So you had order and disorder, you had innovation and stability. That's really broken down. The avant-garde matter much less than they used to. And I think that comes as a terrible shock to hipsters who believe that it is their God-given right to call shots for certain cultural purposes. Now they matter much less. To make matters still worse is the problem we were talking about a moment ago is that they live in a world of such ferocious innovation, so many different kinds of filmmaking and music making that they can no longer craft a wave. They can no longer nail their colors to a particular mask. They're kind of living in their own special kind of hyperinflated world. And then the mainstream got way better. You know, all that time we spent and other people spent telling the corporation, you've got to get innovative. You've got to get in this game. You can't wait for innovation to come within. You need to have, remember there's that moment when the corporations for whom we work suddenly created these little off-sites, uh, often in you know the, the town in which the HQ was, they'd go out and buy a place that used to be a beer factory or something, and it would be all brick and, and wood. And that would be the place that the corporation went to invent the future. That worked. I mean, sometimes it didn't work, and sometimes it's an exercise in frustration, but it, I think mostly it, it did work. And so every corporation and the mainstream itself got better at embracing change and indeed creating change. So that's a new order of kind of, of difficulty. And so that notion of, oh, the mainstream, they're so clueless and dopey, that's really given way. The ability of the avant-garde to scorn those clueless people at the center, I think, has broken down. So that's another piece. I Well, I tell the story of this young kid in my town. It's really sad. This is a kid who was persuaded by some goofy idea that he discovered online that he should be drinking a lot of water. And he drank so much water, he eventually died. And apparently, you, you, that's what happens to your body if you drink too much water. It goes into a kind of crisis. And, and in his case, you die. And I thought, holy cow, you know, that, that's kind of the death of common sense. There used to be some things you didn't have to say. We didn't have to raise our kids and say, don't drink too much water. We just didn't have to because, well, it never came up and it was never going to happen. And now it can happen, which means the it means that in some sense, common sense is being emptied out. And that uh, anyhow, so that's another piece here that I think is tricky. But most of all, cultural is not cohering in the way that it used to. There's some good news on the other hand. Should I rush into good news or I think you have a question on that? Yeah, well, <laughs> I do want to get into good news because understanding the problem is a little disheartening, <laughs> right? But so, yes, I do want to get to the solution. But there is, based on that common sense, you were talked about recently, you spoke about the sheer volume of bad behavior these days in the decency reservoir. And in my mind, I would attach those two together. Let's talk about that for a minute to just kind of flesh out that component of the, the cultural malaise, if you will. Or, or shifts that we're, we're seeing. Yeah. 
I sometimes go walking with a neighbor and he, very modestly and over several months, he would say, oh, that Little League field, I helped build it. Or or I helped work on the um, amateur theater. Or turned out he'd made all of these contributions to the life of my little town in Connecticut. What was more striking was he got no credit. I didn't know anything about it. Most people didn't know anything about it. He got no credit. And I thought, this is really dumb. If you want to run the system of credit, you want to build a reputational economy where people do great stuff for the community and and nothing happens to their reputation, good luck. You're going to get three or four of these guys, like my neighbor, who just spontaneously do this stuff. If you want to tap the oceans of, of goodwill that sit beneath this community, you need to reward people. And so I started thinking about how to build a reputation economy. And I ended up writing a book called uh, Honor, uh, the New Honor Code. And that was an attempt to say, we need a reputation economy. We need to give honor to people who do good things. And we need to, to withdraw honor from people who do bad things. So the book opens with a description of the Harvard soccer team, which scandalized everyone by, it was, was discovered that these guys were keeping a spreadsheet on what they took to be the sexual characteristics of women on the women's soccer team. What was striking was how completely horrifying this was. In a Me Too era, no less, you've got guys behaving like thugs of the first order. But then you had everybody at Harvard that I could detect who was, should have stood up and treated this as the ultimate teachable moment didn't stand up. And I didn't think anybody was ever called upon. These guys were, um, somebody said, you have to apologize for this behavior. And the guys on the team said, yes, we're prepared to apologize. We'll write something for the Crimson newspaper, but you can't use our names. And I thought for crying out loud, it's not an apology unless you sign it. Anyhow. So evidence there of like really bad behavior. And then the other example is Wells Fargo Bank, which started handing out credit cards to people left, right, and sent people who didn't exist or people who were 11 or people who were homeless. It was a fantastic kind of violation of their trust. So I thought, boy, we're seeing it break out everywhere, you know, and it really matters. It's almost as if we've run out of honor or run out of decency would be maybe the more popular word. And I thought, well, maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe we have been cheating for most of the 20th century. Maybe we've been running on decency created by another society. I mean, you could say, you know, the Victorians say what you will about them. We're all about being absolutely honorable. And clearly they failed. And clearly this honor was a cloak for much bad behavior. So let's not be naive about what's going on here. But sometimes they created a culture that moved people to do the right thing spontaneously and sometimes without reward. So I thought maybe, and I call it the Himmelfarb Reservoir because Himmelfarb was the, was the historian who, who, who sort of ventures this idea. And I thought maybe there was a Victorian reservoir on which we were drawing right through the 20th century. By the time we got to the end of the 20th century, we had exhausted it. And now we were creatures who didn't quite get what it was to be moral, didn't quite know what that decency mattered. 
anyhow, that was the point of the book. And then I thought in this kind of, you know, some part of my world, as we all do, I think like an economist or I try to think like an economist. And I thought, okay, what would you do? How could you turn honor or decency into this reputation economy and restore good behavior to the contemporary world? And, you know, I don't think this, <laughs> my book is going to change very much, but that was the idea. Innovate MR has recently appointed market research leader Kristen Luck to the board of directors and has garnered significant investment from civic partners. With this, the team has entered a new era of exponential growth, expanding their ability to help brands around the world make data-driven decisions. The team has created the Vision Suite, a Stevie award-winning ResTech platform offering researchers a comprehensive collection of next-generation products, enabling survey design, sample procurement, fraud mitigation, reporting, and do-it-together team support. So I'm thinking when you're, well, when I read it and listening now is that we have a definitional issue. And it goes back to that, that lack of homogeneity, right? If we go back to the 50s, there was a, use your example, it's a great example of, there was a pretty clear sense culturally of what's right and what's wrong. And, and I, I don't know another language to use. I, I'm, again, I'm not casting moral judgments on anybody. It was just a, in a question of there was an agreed on, this is okay and this isn't, right? So my, my oldest daughter is an anthropologist. Uh, she had an anthropology major. And now she got a master's in urban planning and for the folks on sustainability. Anyway, yes, proud dad. She's, she's great. She's also, we have really interesting conversations because right? she, on this topic, there are things we have very different definitions of what we consider to be right or wrong. And yeah, you can imagine with a, you know, father and, and daughter, sometimes those aren't always great, fun conversations, but, <laughs> but she's enough like me that we can usually get over the, the daddy daughter dynamic into, wait a minute, you know, what are the core principles we can agree on? And I think that agreement on the core principles, that seems to be at the root of these cultural dynamics and this, uh, this, that we, we just can't agree on them. You know, and there's so many things that that fragment that. And again, to put it back for our, our listeners in the insight space, you know, when we're using psychographic models based upon upon assumptions on shared values, or even if you're writing a survey based on assumptions of shared values, I see so many, even personally, because I like to take surveys to see what's going on. Like you're not capturing me anymore in this. You're making assumptions about things that I think are important that are absolutely not important that don't resonate with me and vice versa, right? What is the path for us to at least understand the right question so we can make sense of these issues? If we know that there is lots of, of disparity and even you know opposing radically different views on these things, how do we start to put a frame of reference around things again that can make sense instead of it just being such a damn mess that often we're not even paying attention to because we still think that we're, we're still living in, you know, 10 years ago and we yeah. are just not anymore. Yeah. No, I love the way you've put that. I mean, and, and that's exactly right. It's an opportunity for the research community to ride to the rescue, right? We're the people who could actually find out where the points of commonality are, where they've ceased to exist whether there are points of rapprochement, what they would look like. And so we could actually make a difference here. My sense is that there's there's maybe, you know, what that the, the men's soccer team at Harvard did is, I think, wrong by any standard. 
what Wells Fargo did was wrong by any standard. So there's some, you know, what people who were doping in, in competitive cycling were doing clearly wrong. So I think there are moments when, this is when we get into the anthropology, actually. So there are moments when I think we can agree. I think there are also moments that we are entitled, and this is going to sound a little bit villager with a pitchfork, and so I, I mention it with trepidation, but, you know, I think we are as a community entitled to express our umbrage, our unhappiness when people behave in a, in a bad way. And I think Americans, for a variety of reasons we could talk about, are disinclined to really vilify a villain. We just don't. And we, if only because we say America is a place of second chances and anybody, everybody deserves the opportunity for a comeback and all of that stuff. I think, and I try to argue it in the book, is you behave in certain behaviors and you're probably done, you know, and you know that that guy who, uh, Lance Armstrong, who misbehaved himself in competitive cycling, he stole medals from people. When he came in first, I'm assuming that that was driven by the intervention of, of various drugs and so on. He was actually stealing medals from people and, and glory from people. And he was changing the life arcs of of people. And you know for certain, or at least I speculate in the book, that he's planning a comeback, right? And and at some point, he'll show up again with a, a kind of um, a bashful grin and we'll forgive him. I don't think we, for, we should forgive him. I think when somebody is on the verge of doing the wrong thing, they should have a moral voice that says, don't do this for moral reasons, but they should also have a self-interested voice that says, don't do this, because it could cost you your celebrity. And a guy like that should be effectively removed from, from our the public domain as a creature who interests us, certainly as a creature who deserves our, our admiration. Certainly our kids shouldn't ever, you know. So anyhow, I think that's where community reasserts its right to decide between good and bad and to punish those who do bad behavior. I mean, just to use another example, right? There was a newscaster who actually had a way of locking his door so that he could feast upon interns within the corporation, right? Behavior like that. I mean, I don't think that guy can ever come back. I think in a Me Too era, especially, that guy is done for. But I think we need to be more resolute in our condemnation of people like that. And again, that sounds a little kind of, you know, thuggish maybe. But but hey, if the alternative is network executives systematically feasting on interns, I think we know what to do. Yeah. So I want to be conscious of time. And as we suspected, there's a lot to dig into in this entire topic and across the board. But for our last few minutes, and, and yeah, Grant, thank you so much. You're going to come back. So I'd love to. You, you have no choice. It's, <laughs> a deal. it's decided. You're going to come back. Because as we, and you said it, researchers have a very specific and powerful role to play in making sense of, of these dynamics. And you've done a fantastic job of mapping out these forces of change that are impacting things at a cultural level. We all see the craziness around us, right? The, you know, <laughs> I always say just, you know, aliens, come on down, right? It's time. <laughs> Let's just get it done, you know? But the impact on on culture and the, the role that that plays in us understanding and doing our jobs well is hugely important. And I want to continue to explore that. Now, on that note, you have started a system, I guess, for lack of a better word, called the GRIF that 
in my understanding, is to use to help identify some of these signals and map some of these things out. Can you tell us a little bit about the GRIF? Yeah, you know, as an anthropologist, I'm working from two points of view, anthropology as if from above and ethnography as if from below. And my truth is where those two things, big picture on the up, upper decks, and, and then this very this opportunity to listen to people in a very detailed way and figure out what they mean by this and what they mean by that. When those two things meet, for me, that creates kind of cultural illumination. But the more I looked at what was in the middle, the more I saw the kind of ferocious dynamism that we've been talking about throughout the podcast. And I thought, you know, I need some way to keep track of all the changes taking place. So the GRIF is, it's named for the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, the one that has a a map of the heavens within, but it also looks out on LA and the center for the production of culture in the American world. So anyhow, that's the, the notion. And the notion is we track 250 trends at the moment. So we just, we're constantly looking at what's happening. If things look like they might matter, we, our notion is spot it, track it and predict it is what we're doing for clients. And so the Griff is meant to be an opportunity to, to corral the things that we think could are making a difference and could make a difference. And then we use Obsidian to break apart any given trend and figure out what its various facets are. And then we use Hepta to kind of scale back up to kind of look for patterns, the patterns that now make this trend make sense, and then look for the patterns that might be the the fault lines or the pathways that it uses to change itself and the world as it develops. And then we build scenarios and, and stuff. And there's just, you know, so much interesting stuff going on we're looking at pets, the arc of pets, you know, you think it's, they start as, as animals in the wild and then we domesticate them and we bring them in. I mean, this is over thousands of years and we bring them in and then we give them human for a long time. They're sort of living and we actually bring them from the farmhouse into the, into the home. And, but we still call them things like King and Prince. And then we start giving them human names and now we give them gifts, right? So they're being incredibly, the gap between human and, and animals is, is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Now you can just see this glimmer of a kind of mythological treatment of pets. That is, that's an exciting moment in the Griff where you go, what is going on here? That's just weird. And maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's just noise in the system, but maybe it's a glimpse of, of what's happening here. So anyhow, that's that's the Griff. That is, uh, that is fascinating. So you say we, so uh, for our audience, that there are research buyers in here as well, right? So is that a is that an academic pursuit or is it a commercial pursuit? I think it has to be a commercial, you know, I've made my living, I've funded the Griff exclusively out of my, the proceeds of my consulting. And I think that's the great test of it is that you know, I don't have money to feed the Griff unless I've made myself useful for somebody, unless they said, yeah, no, that was good. We like that. And so the Griff comes out of that sense of you got to produce. Nobody wants a purely academic treatment. So that's the thing um, that we've done now for a series of, of clients. We did a treatment of the American Home for Google. Um, we've worked for some big banks on um, on just that. You know, we've actually built a Griff in, or are in the process of building a Griff inside a bank. 
I, don't, I can never remember who I'm allowed to name, who I'm not. So we have a series of clients who are, again, just saying, look, if you can give us the bigger picture here, that would be useful. And as one of them put it recently, you know, you don't have to be right. You just have to be compelling. You just have to be, you have to give us visibility. We'll decide, you know, the virtue of what you've given us as, as an actual prediction, preferred if you were right. But just that moment of clarity that you get from good scenario building where people go, oh, okay, if and when that comes for us, we will have seen it before and we will know what to do. So I think that's the, the proposition. Oh, that's great. So effectively, it's a trends forecasting um, yes. solution. Yes. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. So again, I think we could go on for a really long time. And <laughs> I, I do want a part two at some point because I think that cultural dynamism is not slowing down my my read i think there's even more macro forces of change that are starting to unfurl right now they're going to cause further disruption and a lack of cohesion and probably you know even more radical fragmentation of the culture uh, as we go forward and yeah we've got to thank god for folks like you that are paying attention and helping us to track it because i think even at a, at a macro level like your your banker customer we need to detect those glimmers so then as researchers, we can say, oh, maybe we need to factor this in to our understanding of, of our segments, of the drivers of behavior, of value creation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I definitely, if you're okay with it, want to continue to explore that you know, this way. Where can folks find you? I mean, you've written a ton of books. You've got the Substack. Please promote yourself. Tell people where they can follow you and engage with you directly. Sure. The Substack is Grant McCracken at substack.com and then culturebuy.com is the blog and then then i do a fair amount on medium but always just re, you know reach grant 27 at gmail.com fire me a question and uh i would love to chat and there's a ton of stuff um ton of stuff to do i think for for us as a community so i'd love to love love to be part of that uh and i'll leave it to you lenny to let me know where i can be useful yeah, no, I appreciate Grant. There, there will be a follow-up. Um, there's a lot going through my head right now, too. So <laughs> we'll follow up on that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience before we we close out this particular podcast? No, I think I think for a moment I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what anomaly that is for myself. And I, <laughs> it's the same for you. <laughs> Uh, um, it's been a real pleasure, my friend. And thank you for all the work that you do. This really is, and I cannot stress your audience enough. I, this is important stuff and we can lose track of it, but we need watchers on the wall, I guess, like you, Grant, that you're, you're paying attention. You're looking at these things so we can navigate the change that we're just going through and we'll, we'll always go through, right? Uh, last thing, what we're talking about my take is that none of this is new. It's the pace that is new, right? Yeah. The pace and the disruption, the kind of black swan kind of suddenly, oh my God, this works according to a logic I never anticipated that totally. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. That's our show today. Many thanks, Grant, for being our guest. Thank you to our producer, Karen Lynch, our editor, James Carlisle. Thanks to the entire Green Book team that participates in helping make all this happen, and especially our episode sponsor, Innovate MR. That's it. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you on the next podcast. Bye-bye.
Green Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.